Welcome to Writers Talking, the podcast where we take writers and readers behind the scenes, sharing the stories within the stories. No scripts, no filters, and no holds barred as we talk about what really happens for writers as they write, edit, publish, and promote their work. Hi, I'm Anjanette Fennell, agent, editor, and writerly mentor who's worked with hundreds of writers to break through their creative challenges to uncover the stories they feel compelled to share. Now, let's get talking. Before authoring the Outer Banks Bookshop Mysteries, Alicia Bissett worked as a reporter in her home state of Massachusetts, where her writing won a first place award from the New England Newspaper and Press Association. A pianist, published poet, and enthusiastic bird watcher, she now loves living in coastal North Carolina with her husband, novelist Matthew Quick. You can learn more about Alicia at her website, aliciabissett.com. I really enjoyed your book. I love a cozy mystery. Good. Oh, thanks. I'm glad. Yeah. But maybe what we'll start off with, because you're the first author that I really felt that setting or place was truly a character. And this seems to make sense with a little bit of emailing back and forth about possible topics. This second book that you've written in particular, setting is clearly a character. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Like, how does it all, how does story come to you? Setting is crucial. So I'm glad you picked up on that. I have always been turned on by place. I love to travel. And whenever I go someplace new, the first thing I do or my favorite thing to do is just hang out or walk around or sit around and open my eyes and let the sights come in and the sounds come in and just let my senses guide me. So I've always had this ability and this need to just sort of absorb my surroundings. That when I sit down to conceive of a book, that's the first thing I need to know mm. is where where in the world are we? Mm. And then as soon as I know the answer to that, then then I figure out who lives there, who who are the characters who people this place, and what are they up to? And then the characters start doing things, and that yeah. becomes the plot. So for me, it's setting first, then characters, then plot in that in that order. That's really um, interesting. So especially because I know that this most recent book is sort of the second, yeah. right? So the same characters in the first. So how did how did that work for you with this one? You knew Mustang Beach was you wanted to set it. Mm-hmm. And you've already got this character. Do I pronounce it Callie? Is that Callie? R- yeah. Right? It's, it's interesting because I had that's the nice thing about writing a series is that mm. World building is already complete when you when you get to book two, when you get to yeah. the sequel. You're like, okay, I don't really have to make decisions about those sorts of things because they're already in place. And not only that, but you can expand on what's already there. Right. And so I I knew I wanted to write about the horses because there there are horses on the outer banks, very much like the the wild mustangs in the in book two and they're majestic and Mm. they're beautiful to see and to witness and their habitat is shrinking because of all the coastal construction and you know people need places to live too and so I wanted to explore that and I wanted to explore 
the, the people in charge of making decisions about these animals also. So yeah. I thought this is a, this is an element of place that I could really sink my teeth into and that Callie would sink her teeth into also, because we already know that she's an animal lover from book one. Yeah. And here we have book two. It's this, the horses are this defining element of her, of her environment. And so naturally, if she heard about some danger that they were facing, she wouldn't be able to leave that alone. So that's how that, that's how book two evolved. It's really interesting too. I'm sort of getting even a better sense again. Everyone who's listening now would have heard the intro. So they know that you were also a journalist and talking about uh, taking an angle. I mean, how much of you is in Cali and sort of highlighting these things that are important, right? Because that was another thing throughout the book. Not like you're being hit over the head with this really, you know, strong messaging, like you must, you know, the, it is, the climate is an issue and preserving natural areas and the animals the way that they are is obviously an issue, but I'm seeing this overlap and it's beautiful. I mean, most writers have, whether they admit it or not, and maybe depending on the genre, there's a strong overlap. That where you get to live out that part of you and that that part of your past experience. Yeah, yeah okay. definitely. <laughs> I have no problem admitting that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I am not Callie. Callie is not me. Um, yeah. She's younger than I am. I think she's braver than I am. You know, Mm. as a writer, I spend most of my time just sitting in this room thinking stuff up, whereas she is lucky enough, you know, she gets to go out into the world and actually solve crimes, which (laughs) I don't get to do. So I get to live vicariously through her. There is a lot of me in Cali. We are both health nuts. You know, we both drink green kale smoothies on the regular. We both run. Um, And she has a background in journalism. Her, her journalism experience was a little more intense than mine. She, she worked at an urban daily, whereas I worked at a a weekly suburban newspaper. It was actually my hometown where I grew up. Oh, wow. I would say that, I mean, certainly I'm not the first person to point out that working in a newspaper is good preparation for writing fiction. But (laughs) something that I think about a lot when I think back on my newspaper days is my favorite stories were features and and just human interest pieces where Mm. I got to meet someone in the community who was doing something special or cool. And I just let them talk. And it's sort of like, now that I'm, yeah, I'm just having (laughs) realization now as I'm speaking. It's kind of like when I go to a new place and I just let the place introduce itself to me. That was sort of my approach with these interviews is just let these people tell me their stories and then and then turn around and tell them as I as I heard it. And that is that's how I got to know Callie. So yeah, there's there's a lot of Callie in me, but she's not me. Yeah. (laughs) Well I was gonna say and maybe you don't get the injuries that she is more prone to because she gets herself into a little bit of trouble. I was just thinking, and again, this plays off of another interview uh, with your husband, but looking at, because that's a little bit in my background as well, you seem very much the observer. And so I don't know if you've heard of Enneagram or anything like that. And I don't usually think of that, but I'm like, you 
seem like an observer. You seem like a number five, at least in part of if you know Enneagram. I've done some online tests. I don't know how legit it was. Yeah, I feel like I was a four. Okay. Interesting. But But you have wings and look, I raise my hand. I am not an expert at all. Yeah. In fact, I think I'm one of the ones that often thinks it's a different one than what it is, but all that to say. Yes. Right. The way that you're describing it, whether you are coming from that journalistic place or going to a new place and just being quiet and sort of letting that place meet you, Mm -hmm. I think is a really interesting process. Not that this author has been on the podcast yet. I've talked to her previously and I've interviewed her for a group that I mentor, but she's the only other author that has said definitely the place starts first. And then once she knows the place that it is, the characters sort of come up to her and introduce themselves. And this can maybe help us segue into this because I thought this was really interesting too. And it actually is really closely related to, I think, the fact that you're writing mysteries of any kind. Now, look, there's tension and maybe a little bit of mystery in most stories, but you're just specifically where you may even have to reverse engineer after you've got a first draft. But you said you were a plotter or sorry, you were a pantser, but now you're a plotter. Is that right? Correct. Right. How did that, how did that happen? Was it because you were writing your first and then you thought, wow, that was too intense, (laughs) too many, too many drafts. I have to plot a bit more first. My previous attempts at fiction were in the in the women's fiction realm. And I was pantsing and it, it worked out fine. When I decided I wanted to try my hand at writing a mystery, I quickly discovered I didn't get too deep into the process, thankfully, before I realized, at least for me, pantsing was not going to work. And then, <laughs> like you said, I needed to reverse engineer. I needed to know ahead of time the characters' roles were in the story. I needed to know who the villain was. I needed to know who the best friend was, the red herrings, and on and on. Yes. So if, if I could figure out what everybody was going to do and in the order they were going to do it, <laughs> then it would be much easier to go back and and write the mystery. So that's how I became a plotter. I I realized that in order to write a mystery, I had to have my plot game down and <laughs> it would be much <clears throat> a much smoother process. Having that scaffolding. Yeah. And the the, the big knock against plotters is that or plotting, I should say, when when you have a plan and you stick to it, you don't have moments of, you know, you don't have the eureka moments or the moments of surprise in your writing. Right. And and that might be true for some people, but for me, I have found that the opposite is true. It's it's sort of this paradox that when I have a plan in place, even, you know, it doesn't have to be a tight plan. Yes. It's, it's pretty loosey-goosey, but as long as I have scaffolding up or guardrails or if I know where I'm going in a general sense and where the characters are going, I find that I have more eureka moments when I write and more moments of these surprise connections that I didn't know are going to happen. Right. And I think, I mean, part of that might just be some mystery and I'll never know the reason, but part of it might be that when I was pantsing, there was a lot of anxiety because I didn't know what, you know, who knows what's going to (laughs) happen. You know what I mean? But when I'm plotting, there's less anxiety. And Mm. so I think my mind can relax a little bit more. And then when Mm. your mind 
taxes, surprise happens. Oh, it's interesting. So what I espouse is what we would call planting, which is a little (laughs) bit of both, right? So enough scaffolding. And I love that you said it, not just because it reflects what I advise writers to do, (laughs) which is, I mean, look, by the way, we always say, if it's working for you, whatever's working for you and you're enjoying it, then keep on keeping on, you know, you just keep doing that until or unless it shifts for you. And the fact that you bring up that feeling of anxiety, I liken it to if you just have a vague idea and you haven't set even the, the intention of where you want the story to end, like they close the book and the reader thinks, feels, knows this, maybe. I mean, we don't control it, but that's your ultimate message. If you don't know that, that's like not knowing your destination when you're going on a road trip. And say you have access to every type of transport. You could take a a plane, you could take a train, you could take a boat. But if, I mean, too many choices. And that personally would make me really anxious. Plus, (laughs) if you don't know what you're doing and you are very character centric. I always feel like when you're sitting down at the desk or wherever you write, there might be a moment where you sit down and it's like you're at a party in a room and then someone turns off the lights, everyone leaves and shuts the door, but you don't know where they went because you have no idea what comes next. At least with like that scaffolding, you have a vague idea. I think they probably went over here. (laughs) And this makes it sound like they're all separate and outside of you, but I'm positive that there is a lot of that magic still in it. I love hearing that you still get to feel those magical moments. I read some things too, and you just have to tell me, when you're talking about the nuances and characters surprising you, there were particular conversations kind of like reminds me of the Scooby-Doo moment, but not quite as basic as, you know, the villain saying, and this is how I did it. But we have to let some of those pieces out so that the reader knows. you, And you could have gone multiple different ways. I was so impressed reading this. Ivy and Cooper talking about what happened. And of course, Callie's there listening. And I thought, you've left the breadcrumbs, but their reasoning could be different. It could have played out differently. Like a different villain could be in play with this particular situation. Was that always planned? Was there magic in there? Like, where are those magical moments for you in a story like this? When you've got, you've got to have to have a lot of red herrings as well. I mean, there's a lot. So that's pretty, (laughs) pretty well done. Thanks. What happens for me uh, pretty predictably is (laughs) I get to the end of act one and I realize who who, the villain is not who I thought it was. And then I have to go back and change. So I have my outline for act one. I have my outline for the whole book, but then when I get to the end of act one, I have to go back and, and, and shift everything around. So, wow. So do you do that straight away? Do you kind of edit as you go or is it light editing? How does that work? I'm not the type of writer that needs to have the sentence perfect before I move on to the next sentence. That is just Total strangulation. It would never work for me. (laughs) Yeah. So I sort of write in fragments and I'll write all over the place. I don't write sequentially either. So I might be working on chapter 30 one day and then chapter seven the next day. It's really strange. I I don't know anyone else. I don't know any other But how freeing. Like, it's very. How do you know? How do you know which one you're doing? And, and again, I tend to sound a bit woo, but I just all think it's all 
psychology and or spirituality, how do you know which one you're going to show up and write? Do you just get a sense? You get a feeling a particular part of the story is calling to you? What is it when you're sitting down? I think you let the characters talk to you. And then sometimes some characters have something a little bit more urgent to say than others. And you just, wherever they are in the story, that's where, that's where I go. go. Oh, wow. I know it's weird. Well, but I, look, I appreciate it. I think, and that again is one of the points of a lot of these conversations on the podcast, right? It's to help other writers see that they are not alone in whatever they think is the weird process they have. Because coming from a place where we see all the books on the shelves and you've got these two beautiful books and you've just started your promo tour, I know it's released. Is that next week? God. The year goes by so quickly in the U.S. Um, So just after Mother's Day in the U.S., it's officially being released, but you're going out and you're talking. And for you, you know all of those in-between moments, right, that get you from first draft to Mm -hmm. bookshop shelves. And there are other writers even if they've written books before, look at what, look at what she did. And I don't do it. You know, the way I'm doing it isn't going to work, but I, I don't know of many authors that have exactly the same process. There are bits and pieces that are similar. So I love getting the opportunity to talk to somebody who says, no, I write fiction and I write it out of order. You know, that's okay. Every book is a little different. And I th- I think you're right to encourage people to realize that there is a spectrum and wherever you fall on the spectrum is wherever you need to be. You know, whatever get whatever has you sitting down and getting the words out, that's mm. what you need to do. And you don't you don't get there unless you are willing to invite trial and error into your life. So it can be a long, frustrating process. Mm. But you will eventually figure out where you're most comfortable. That, that's what I always tell aspiring writers or you know writers who ask me about my process. I heard once that uh, Dan Brown gets up every morning at four and writes until noon. Every now and then I decide, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to do that. You know, <laughs> it's going to be me. And I try it and I don't even get through one day. I mean, it just doesn't work, you know? I, well, look, just, are you a morning person? Naturally, do you like getting up that early? No. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so, so what am I doing? hold yourself to that standard, you know? Yes. Yes. A hundred percent. And look, even, even to the point that a lot of people say, and I'm not going to argue again with somebody's actual process, but some people say, you know, you're, it's the work and you sit down and I just sit down every day and I do it and I write my words. Some people have a word count that they want to meet and others have like a time. I know Dean Kuntz talks about, you know, when he really gets into it, he's just up there writing and maybe the the dog comes in or he'll stop to walk the dog, but that's it and doesn't need to eat. Uh, or there was a Danielle Steele. <laughs> and I've said this before on the podcast oh, who yeah. said like, I write 23 hours a day and I'm like, who's yes. taking care of the like brood of children? I mean, maybe they're all grown now. So no, they take care of themselves, but that sounds impossible. And then you have someone like Stephen Pressfield who's like, no, I have this much time and maybe it's like four hours and maybe two of those hours are kind of like staring off out the yeah. window and you're I, doing laundry or right whatever. or uh, well I mean look I think all writers even 
They don't have to be ADHD or anything like that. It can be amazing procrastinators, like other things need to get done. (laughs) But you're right, just sitting there and saying, so I love both sides of this. So there's nothing wrong with hearing something. It's like health advice. This sounds good. Let me give it a shot. But then you give it a shot. And like, I'm not really awake at 4 a.m. Even when I wake up at the normal time, I don't want to talk to anyone or interact with people. I'm not sure if my brain would be on, but probably more likely that than talking to people. So you try it. And if it doesn't work, you let it go without judgment. Mm -hmm. It's more finding the time and the place depending on maybe the season of your life as well right? Because we've got different obligations, uh, different things that are important to us. And instead of rolling that boulder up the hill and then getting steamrolled, (laughs) it comes back down. Why don't you find that place? I often say, find the the place where you had riderly flow. Give that a try instead of setting yourself up to be, I think, I would love to hear too, how not just in your process with pantsing versus plotting, but has the way that you've shown up for your writing change, like time of day or like you were just talking about anxiety, by the way, super raise my hand for all opportunities to feel anxiety. How do you feel now when you sit? I mean, knowing we probably can't totally relieve ourselves of discomfort because that might be growth or you don't exactly know what's coming, but does it feel better now? What was it like before with more of the commercial women's fiction you were writing versus these mysteries? I have more confidence now. And I think some of that just comes with age, you know, mm. and, and, and experience. Yeah. I do find that I'm turning into more of an evening and nighttime writer, which is weird because I got go to bed early. <laughs> but, uh, and I, I'm not sure why that is. I mean, part of it is because I have a puppy now and yes. I wake up and that's the only thing I want to do is just spend all day with my puppy. And I feel yeah. like I have to cater to his every whim and desire all day long before he'll let me, before he'll leave me alone and I can concentrate. <laughs> kidding, not kidding. But I do find that as I get older, I just... I like to let the day sort of unfold. I like to get outside and exercise and talk to people. And there's something in that just day-to-day living that helps turn on my brain so that by the Mm -hmm. time afternoon, evening rolls around, I feel like creating, you know, lots of, I feel like most writers are morning writers. I I feel like just anecdotally, a lot of the other writers I talk to say that they like to get up and write first thing in the morning because they're brain is fresh and the day hasn't, you know, real life hasn't crowded in there and pushed the creativity out of the way. And that that used to be true for me, but now I don't know with this book that I'm writing now, I'm, I find myself running errands and, you know, exercising during the day. And then by the time you know, dinner rolls around, then I'm ready to write. So it's weird. So I I think you have to be open to change, like you said, and open to letting yourself be who you are as a writer and how it's going to come out is different for every book. And it's different Mm. from, it's not going to look like the writer living next door to you, you know? I think it's that, that the expectation And even if what we're doing is comparing ourselves to ourselves, I used to X, Y, Z, but you don't anymore. By the way, anybody listening, if you haven't seen Alicia's Instagram, you need to go over there because you will know why she can't resist doing the puppy's bidding, right? Just looking at the face absolutely makes sense. But it's funny because what you're describing, even though I'm not 
writing is often how I am because I'm doing a lot of reading as part of my work and doing a lot of editing. So yes, it might be nighttime for me at the moment, but just before that I was editing audio. So it's going out and interacting and getting that energy out before I come back. It's really funny. And and you're right. I probably always wasn't always that way, but I find it a little bit easier now to show up and focus and it may change again. Right. So like it depends. So I do have to ask, is the book or the project you're writing now going to be a follow-on or is it something new? It's something new. Yeah. So, and that, that's all I'll say. No, that's okay. You don't have to spill the beans. I just love hearing when, and again, I'm a little bit different in terms of coming from publishing. And, and these are generalizations, by the way, agents and publishers generally, especially once they've hit on something that goes really well, <laughs> they want more of that. But ultimately, I'm always going to be the supporter of the creative. And because I know sometimes you don't get to say what it is. I mean, maybe Mm -hmm. there are people who are very disciplined and they can just show up and you could write the words, but I have this belief that if you're not really feeling it, it's just not going to resonate. Oh yeah. And who wants to write the 80,000 or so words of something that is purely intellectual, as opposed to something that feel that you feel compelled to share. Yeah. That's an act of bravery right there, by the way. Yeah, I think so. And, and you, you're right. You, you have to go where your energy is directing. Mm. you. Otherwise it's, it's a drag, you know? So. <laughs> yeah. But I, I can't obviously identify specific books that this is how it went but a, a previous conversation, we were talking about the story of Meg Mason. I don't know if you read her book, Sorrow and Bliss, but yeah. it, it went really well. But her story mm-hmm. was she was writing another story and it wasn't really coming, but she thought, I really, this, I should be writing this. And then it was several thousands of words, like tens of thousands of words that she wrote. And she's like, I just, I can't, it's not really going. I'm going to write this other one. It's just for me. Nobody's going to want to see this. It's, it's all I'm going to pour myself into it. And it was for sure. I'm positive would have been an act of courage for her because it would be triggering. There's lots of spots of vulnerability. And anytime, just like I started with you asking about how much of you is in Cali or vice versa. I think anytime an author is writing something, there's always that knowing that readers may think so regardless of the the truth of it, right? So they'll say, how close is this? But that book that had to be written, despite the fact that it wasn't what she quote unquote should write, was the one, right? Because it had to come. I'm just a believer that that's where the magic is. And because we're trying to connect, whether we're reading something fun and, and light, and that might be even romance that you've got these certain tropes, but we always want something fresh and new, even if you're using the tropes or something deeply personal and really challenging to write. We want all of them, but we want the person writing them to be present for it. And yeah. I think presence takes place lower than, you know, the conscious mind, the, this is oh, yeah. where this word goes, right? Yeah, I think you're right. And it's a, creation is a mystery and it's mysterious and you just, you have to sink into it. So, but you're, 
yeah, you're still using your plotting, even though this is a new project and the plotting is working. The plotting is working. (laughs) I love it. Do you ever find that maybe, and this is another part to that thinking, oh, it feels strange if so many writers want to write fresh and, you know, they haven't been impinged on, but going back to the way that you approach your writing as being an observer, like you let a place come to meet you. Hmm. Do you think that maybe subconsciously, not always consciously, but that you're you're picking things up when you're out doing these other things, right? So not intentionally saying, I need to go find this puzzle piece, but you're out there, you're playing, you're moving your body, you're hearing snippets of conversations, you're having your own conversations, right? Do you think that that adds to it? Maybe that's why things have shifted? Yeah, I think that's a big part of it, especially for someone like me. We were, we were talking about the Enneagram before, and I don't know much about that, but I do know um, on the Myers-Briggs mm. uh, scale, I am a ISFP. Okay. So that The S is really big for me. Yeah. Sensation and, yeah. and feeling and perceiving. Yeah. <laughs> that I think going out into the world, like you said, and overhearing snippets of conversation and just that that observational part of my personality demands to be satiated <laughs> before I can sit down and it 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 has to go somewhere you know it, you take all this information in and mm. then and then it has to come out and it it comes out in the writing well or, there's sort of like a an alchemical something is happening right you're bringing it in and then it's shifting and changing mm-hmm. and coming yeah. out for different characters and different ways. That's also where you get the surprise part. I love that. I'm in, I, I, I have changed over time. Oh, I started as an INFP, but I've become an, well, just only the last letter, an INFJ. Ah. And I've sort of lost what that meant. I think I had a real bias against J as a word because I thought judging. I, know. I don't, that <laughs> sounds rude. <laughs> but then maybe I just got more honest about how I was interacting with the world and and how I was comfortable. But I think it's really interesting. Again, the point of all of those things, and I've said this before, and there's human design as well, it's multi-layered and complex and only using things in so much as they help you to recognize parts of yourself for maybe some self-validation and to release all the ways that you think you should be, that just are not who you are. So instead of trying to force yourself to do something that you're not naturally drawn to, uh, what is it? Gretchen Rubin's Four Tendencies. I love that one because it's really great for writers too. You can understand, and this sounds like self-manipulation, but I'm an obliger. So I know I have to have some sort of something outside of me. If I tell someone I will show up for them, I will. If I just have like a goal in my head, maybe I'm like, maybe I'll do it. But I'm it's, (laughs) it's something I would love to work on. I would love to be an upholder. But right now, this is definitely where I am. So I structure things to help me get the best out of me without too much fight or, you know, self-criticism. How about you? Do you, you recognize the Gretchen Rubin's four tendencies. I'm not familiar with that. And as soon as oh you my said, God, look it up. I said, yes. I yes. <laughs> Do just, you say four tendencies quiz. There are only f- four types, so it's easy. <laughs> and then just giving yourself 
those things. Like I said, well, you use the word scaffolding. What I found is an upholder just as a brief. An upholder is somebody who is probably a type A uh-huh. overachiever. They, not- yeah, if they say they're going to do it to themselves or externally, they will do it. If they've signed a contract, they will show up. They are going to do all the things. Then there's obliger, which is like maybe. I'll keep a New Year's resolution with myself. But if I set up, say, a walking, talking date with somebody or something like this, a conversation, I will always show up. That sounds like me. Yeah. So for a writer, (laughs) that's great because if you can set up accountability where the other person isn't there to judge or whip crack, but you just know I do better if I've stated what I'm going to do out loud and they know because I don't like to call it peer pressure, but it's like going to a a group fitness class. Yeah. hundred (laughs) percent. I will. I don't have anything other than I give all. So if I'm sick, I shouldn't go. But if I go, I'm going to go full out with other people around. If I'm working out at home, like maybe even better though, if I have to show my results, like it might be at home, but somebody's tracking what's happening with me, or they might be able to see, then I'm still going to show up because I want them to be (laughs) people pleaser. I want them to be happy with me. Right. I think there are a lot of obligers in the world. Uh, There's another one that is called questioner and that could be you too, but they're more like an engineer. So they're like, tell me why. And then they can turn into an obliger if they're convinced, right? If they know, but they might question. And then there's a rebel who as a writing coach is the hardest for someone externally to help motivate because you can't, (laughs) they will show it. And it's not, I mean, really successful people are rebels, but they will do it if they're going to do it. They don't want to be told the deadline. They don't want to definitely don't want to be reminded of the deadline at like intervals. It's just yeah. if if I've said I'll do it and I want to do it, I'll do it. And then yeah. maybe if I find out I don't want to do it, then I'll tell you and I won't do it. It's funny. I can I feel like I have all four all of, of them. Those. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it depends I, on the project. <laughs> I will write every day, no matter what. I don't I don't need any accountability. But uh, when it comes to exercise, like you said, I, working out at home does not happen for me. <laughs> but I, if I go to a class, yeah. I am there and I am totally focused yeah. <laughs> and completely in my body. But I, And I do feel like I have a bit of a rebel in me also, even though I like a deadline and I, I can work toward a deadline. Yeah. But don't remind me. <laughs> <laughs> don't hold me. Not I, I know. I already know it. Don't nag. That's really yes. interesting. I think it's, and look, I haven't gone into it enough to to see, does she say you could be one in this one place? Yeah. And it may be like most things, right? There, There's a time and a place and we may have shifted. Yeah. But or what, is, what it is. Yeah. And I think that's it. What it's all about is insight into self so that you can be the person that you want to be in the world. And as a writer, that's mm-hmm. it. If you went through a time period where it was really tough to show up for writing right. for whatever reason, then maybe you would need 
something where you like, okay, other people are going to know if I did it or not. I mean, you have another writer in the house. So I don't know how you guys work. That out. Just <laughs> you go to your separate rooms and write and we just know we did something or didn't do something, whatever. But again, all of this is about insight so that you can write and create and share the messages that you want to share. Ultimately, that is what I think yeah. the writing is, is about. Yes. I think, you know, just even circling back to this latest book, which everyone, it was so fun. I haven't put my review up, but I will do that because Thank I got you. to see it in, in NetGalley. Uh, it's, I really enjoy just from a structural, and I know this is, this is me sort of being geeky from where I come from. Yes, I like the story and I like the settings. Sometimes I like the fam- familiarity of a setting I know. So when I mm. mentioned Dean Koontz, I grew up in Southern California. So when he sets stories there, yeah. it, I like it because I recognize things. It's so yeah. ridiculous. <laughs> but likewise, I really appreciate a story. And I know you said you did all the world building or the main world building in book one, but you really drew me in with the world building in this one because I have not yet read book one. I will be reading that now okay. so that I can okay. can get all of the background <laughs> and say, but where was she before? Like getting the prequel. Right. But expose I like being exposed to these places and I haven't spent a lot of time in the south mm. of the US. Yeah. So getting a chance to walk in the shoes of somebody else and see that place and have those very evocative moments. It's interesting. You talk about exercise or running or going to an exercise class and being in your body. I definitely had that feeling with Callie. She was in her body because you have her in her body. Then I got a real sense of things. Maybe is that the, the sensing part? of the Myers-Briggs. I don't know, <laughs> but, yeah. but it was really, it was really nice because like I said, I have an appreciation for learning about new places and yeah. feeling as if I'm anchored to them. Like I don't need a ton of world building, but I do need to feel like I can walk into the Mothervine bookstore and I can, you know, I can look around and kind of get a sense of things. And it may not be exactly what you wrote, but it has to be enough what you wrote for me to be able to walk around and see this really huge sort of historic town. And then next to it, all of this natural reserve where we're not sort of touching anything. How great to have a piece of a place where they keep people away. <laughs> they can't, can't yeah. go in and <laughs> drop rubbish or, or whatever. Yeah. So I'm really appreciative that you brought that sense of place and allowed me to experience it. I love hearing that. I I write about the Outer Banks, but I'm not from here originally. I'm from Massachusetts. Mm. So I, and I've lived here for nine years, but I, I did feel like an observer when I, you know, when I'm writing and I, I really do try to bring all of my powers of observation in when I'm trying, when I'm capturing a place and the people Mm. who live there even though they're fictional, they're, Mm. they're rooted in a real place and they're inspired by real people. And so, yeah, I I try to capture the outer banks with this stance of real appreciation and reverence. Mm. So I'm glad that that comes across. It absolutely came across. And just reading in the acknowledgements too. Oh, and I know we're going to go a little bit long, but I just had one last question because I realized when I was reading it, this was what struck me. 
when you're writing fiction and you got the sense of place, you did research because you've got a based on a real character in a story, as I think you wrote even in the acknowledgments or something like a book in a book. If you like that vibe, you're going to like this. So there was a book in the story that was also a fictional name, but kind of based on a real character that was in the world. And I Mm -hmm. like it anytime we're shouting out girls and women who did something because they didn't get shouted out very much at the time, obviously. How much research goes into it when you're you're already (laughs) having to do this reverse engineering yeah. Does that come first? Do you spend time researching or do you do it as you're writing and you realize, oh, I want to know more about like, how did, yeah. how did it, you do it's, that? It's as I'm writing. I, I don't, I could really dive into research in a major geeky <laughs> way and get completely lost in it and just spend years researching and never write a word. So yeah. I tr- try not to do that. So the the fictional character that you're talking about is is Rosie Beacon. But she's based on Betsy Doughty, who lived on the Outer Banks in the 1700s. And she had this kind of Paul Revere midnight ride moment where she, you know, but versus Paul Revere, Paul Revere only rode what, like 12 miles and (laughs) Betsy Doughty rode 50, I think, or something like this. And, you know, by herself in the middle of the night, in the middle of winter through a swamp and not to... Not to crap on Paul Revere because we need that guy. Yeah. When I I heard about Betsy Dowdy, I thought, oh, this, I got to put this in a book, you know? And so that's what I did. So I did, I did a little bit of research on her, mostly just poking around online. I actually read a children's book about her, you know, inspired by her, um, like a historical fiction novel for middle grade readers. That was the biggest bit of research that I did. And it was, it was a great book. Um, it's called, shoot, I can't remember what it's called. <laughs> An Independent Spirit or something like that. Wow. Um, and I, I learned a lot from that book, but there isn't a lot of research to be done on Betsy Dowdy because not a lot is known beyond right. beyond basics because she was lost to history. And that's that's sort of the point. So oh, It's so sad, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm with you. I think a lot of writers too can get lost in the research, but I think you make a really good point. You have to decide. And so sometimes that can be, I'm not going to call it a mindset thing, except it is. There may be sort of a a shadow fear of, I have to get it all right. I, you know, I'm not ready until I do it, but here's the truth. There, no writer feels ready. A first draft is a first draft. You're definitely going to put more things in. So you need to know enough to get you to move forward. And then you can fill things in having worked through that editorial process with countless authors. You're going to edit. You think you've done all the edits and then you get the publisher and then they will have you do. Yeah. Further edits anyway. So I'm never going to tell people don't geek out. However, the ultimate goal is (laughs) to write a story. But I love just, and again, that moment and the geek in me, like I'm always going to read acknowledgments. Me too. The only reason I didn't read it first is because I wasn't reading it in a physical book. Otherwise I would have flipped to the back Uh first, which is usually where they are because I can't, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just who I am whatever. Uh, But I love that she was not only in the story, but then you got to expand on that in the acknowledgement. So we saw the real purpose behind it as well. And we got to share in that little bit of like that beautiful puzzle piece you found, right? Unexpected. You probably had some of the story already 
in mind. And then here was this extra bit. It's a way to, like you were saying, honor the place that you are now. I mean, that seems like that's a pretty big move. Weather's very different. I know even from the West Coast of the US to the East Coast of the US, and depending on the the size of the city, there's a very different vibe. So you, you said you've been there nine years. Are you, well, we were talking about from US to Australia, like a different vibe. There are similarities, yeah. but differences. Are you are you loving it? Are you starting to feel like this is home? Or oh, yeah. do you just have a place in your heart for for both? I have I have a place in my heart for everywhere I've ever been. <laughs> Very I've just fallen in love with places. So, you know, you can take the girl out of New England, but you can't take New England out of the girl, that kind of thing. Yeah. You no, know, I love living here. It is very different. And I remember the First time, right after we moved, I went to the grocery store to stock up and I was walking down the aisles and people were smiling at me. And I was like, <laughs> why? I thought I had food stuck in my teeth or something or like something. Generally, stuck. they don't smile at you for that, but. <laughs> yeah, well, I, yeah. I didn't know what was going on. Yeah. And then I realized, oh, people are just nice and friendly down I no wasn't going to say that. I wasn't going to say that. I've lived in other countries as well. Obviously, I'm in Australia now. Mostly grew up on the West Coast, lived in the UK and Italy, visited Baltimore. In Baltimore, I just thought, am I doing something wrong? Like my experience yeah. was sort of the opposite. Like I, you know, from the West Coast where if you can't, uh, if you're further south, it's a little bit too smiley Hollywood, maybe uh, superficial. Uh, look, I grew up there, but even went to school in Oregon and lived in Oregon and Washington. And I'm just used to a certain vibe. And I remember just getting a coffee and the girl, I just <laughs> felt like she was looking at me like I had food in my teeth or like, I don't know what was wrong with me. And I just right. thought, okay, but it kept happening. And it, I remember my cousin were really close in age and she said, oh, no, no. She's also from the West Coast. She's like, no, that's just how you didn't do anything wrong. That's how just how people are over here. Right. Yeah. It's like, oh, I'm sure it must be different for some people. But you saying <laughs> then you move south and you're like, what's happening? Why is everyone, why is everyone smiling so relaxed? Me? <laughs> and now you get it. Now you get why they're so yeah. relaxed. Like you soaked it in. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sort of like you in that, obviously I've moved and lived in lots of places and I'm really appreciative, the different temperament and the different emotions maybe that you get in these different places. There's beauty everywhere, all sorts of different people. And then there are places that maybe you just settle for a while and you think, this is where I can exhale, right? Yeah. And those are the nice places to be for as long as you can be there. I could obviously, and I say this at the end of everyone. So I think it's just me that could talk to anyone all day long. But really, I could <laughs> chat to you. I am so, so thankful that not only did I get to read Murder on Mustang Beach, I got to chat with you about your process and that you got to share something that is totally different to, I think, as you've said, the way that people have this preconceived idea of how story comes or how you're meant to do it, or that if you're a plotter, you don't get to experience the magical moments. You can have it all. You can, you can have a bit of both. It doesn't have to be an either or. 
Thank you so much for coming on today, Alicia. It has been an absolute pleasure. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. I appreciate you. I appreciate everything you're about. So thank you. This has been lovely. And uh, yeah, I've really enjoyed myself. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Writers Talking. Join us next time for more writers in conversation as we delve into the writer's process, their passions, and a little bit about their books. Don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast player and follow us on Instagram at writers underscore talking underscore podcast.